Welcome to episode number 163 of CXO Talk. I'm Michael Krigsman, and today we are talking about mindfulness and all the great things that mindfulness can bring in a business setting. And I'm speaking with my old friend, best-selling author, one of the top mindfulness teachers in the world. She travels the world talking about this. Susan Piver. Susan, how are you today? I'm good, Michael. I'm glad to see you. Well, it's great to see you too. And thank you for, inaugur- <laughs> I was going to say, inaugurating episode number 163 of CXO Talk. Susan, let's begin by, tell us about your, your background. You've, you've written eight books. You travel the world. You talk about mindfulness. So, so tell us what's the common theme. Sure. Um, Well, the common theme from my very first book, which was about asking questions before you get married, which was a long time ago, to my current book, which is about how to start and sustain a meditation practice, the common theme is that all of my books are about something you do. They're about a way to bring something that you may have thought was a good idea in theory or in principle and how to actually bring it into your life so that you can experience and make it your own. So you've written eight books, uh, and I, because I know you, I know the, I know that that Oprah was. Uh, you became a a very very best selling author, and and part of which was uh, due to Oprah. So you have to tell us that story because it's kind of interesting. <laughs> sure. Um, yeah. <clears throat> Excuse me. That was back when she had her daytime show on broadcast television. And I had written this book, The Hard Questions, 100 Essential Questions to Ask Before You Say I Do, because I was getting married and there was all the books were about like dresses and flowers. And I couldn't find anything that was about what I was interested in. So I just started writing these questions down to ask my then boyfriend, who was kind enough to excuse me, to answer these questions with me. And then the book came out and kind of nothing happened. You know, it did okay. And, but I, at the time had my own business. I was a book packager, so-called, which means combining a book with another form of media. And I was just sitting at my desk talking to a manufacturer in Hong Kong about paper stock. And my assistant said, the Oprah shows on the other line. So I was like, I'll call you back. And I picked up and we talked about various things. They were thinking, oh, maybe we'll do this. We might do this kind of show. And it was like 10 minutes in when I realized this was a pre-interview. Anyway, long story short, I was on twice. The topic was a popular one. And, you know, it was interesting. You were, oh, you were actually on the Oprah show? Twice, yeah. Oh, I did, twice. Wow. I didn't. Yeah. That's amazing. So yeah. anyway, so she made you a bestseller. Yeah, it was interesting. Maybe your audience will find this interesting. There's lot, there were lots of authors on the Oprah show, and they didn't all become bestselling authors just because they were on there, even though people think, oh, you go on that show, you become a bestselling author. And I did, not because I was a better guest or wrote a better book, but because the show focused on people doing my book rather than what I had to say about what was in the book. So when you make something experiential like that for an audience, 
it just drives it home in a much more interesting way. So I think that's why the book became such a strong seller. And because it was such a strong seller, I got to write other books. And here we are today. Okay, so so you uh, are writing about mindfulness. You're teaching mindfulness. Let's begin, and there and there are a lot of practical implications of mindfulness for business that we want to talk about. So let's begin. We hear this term mindfulness tossed out a lot, and it's kind of a faddish term. But what does it actually mean? What does mindfulness mean? That is a really good question. And you're right. People have all sorts of ideas about what it means. And we can offer a number of definitions, but let's just go with this. Mindfulness is the ability to place your attention where you would like it to go and then hold it there. And that can seem impossible in this day and age where so many things are calling for our attention and there's a million screens and a million tasks and just a million advertisements, a million bits of information to parse. But actually, we can have agency over that thing on the inside that points here and there. We can actually choose where we would like it to go and hold it there, as I say, and he or she who can control their attention can control the world. Maybe it's a little bit of an overstatement, but not too much. So, so mindfulness is the ability to control your attention. Is that what you're saying? It's the ability to choose where to place your attention and where to hold your attention. It's you know, one way it, of looking at it. It's a simple, it's a, it's a very simple thing to describe mindfulness being where to uh, having the ability to choose where to place your attention, but maybe elaborate on that because, you know, in, in, in practical thinking, we look at an object, we look at a situation, we're in a meeting, we place our attention there. How is that different from mindfulness as you're describing it? Mm-hmm. Well, You're in a meeting, you say, and you place your attention there, but are you really placing your attention there? Because what is most common for most of us is that our body is doing one thing and our mind is doing something else. Your body's sitting in a meeting, but your mind is thinking about what you want to say next, or your mind body's in the meeting and your mind is worried about whether you're going to get your point across or what you said 10 years ago, or whether you, you know, have cancer or what's for lunch or mind and body split constantly. And when they synchronize, as it's called in wisdom tradition, we relax, we expand, we are able to actually attend to what is happening, not what we think about what is happening. And we come into possession then of the second quality that is always paired with mindfulness. And that is called awareness. So As we cultivate the ability to focus and be very precise and crisp with our attention, something interestingly happens right alongside that, which is we are, we see more clearly. We are able to uh, see patterns we hadn't seen before. We have more insights. Our perceptions become sharper. That's called awareness. So mindfulness and awareness are inseparable and Often, of course, now it's, it's just called mindfulness. And so, but that, however, only refers to 50% of the sort of treasure trove that you come into possession of when you practice meditation. Half is mindfulness, focus, 
And the other half is awareness. Your kind of your own brilliance comes to the fore. So mindfulness, if we, if we think about a, and correct me if I'm wrong, if we think about a business context, mindfulness means the focus on the meeting, not thinking about, well, what did I have for breakfast this morning and my foot hurts and what am I doing tonight? So that's mindfulness. And when we have that kind of focus, it allows us to be uh, have greater awareness of the present circumstance. Is that, is that accurate, what you're describing? Yes. And it allows us to have awareness of things that we might not have even noticed otherwise. So as a meditation teacher, I have heard countless times from people who say, there's no way I can meditate. I can't sit still. I have ADD. And, you know, most people are kidding, but they kind of aren't kidding. Meaning they haven't been diagnosed, but they feel that they have ADD. Oh, hey, I'll raise my hand on that one. Okay. So, so please help me, help me out here. here for you. Um, The world has ADD and we live in the world. That is much more likely to be true for most of us than that you have a clinical diagnosis of ADD. Everything is cycling so fast. And in our business environments, it is of utmost importance to be able to slow down, not because it feels better, although it does, but because when we slow down, we can manifest the qualities that seem to be most important in the current business environment, such as the ability to innovate. Nobody can speed through a meeting or an idea or a email and also find what is innovative and unique and the thing they hadn't seen before. To see the thing you hadn't seen before, you have to slow down. You have to get off autopilot. Similarly, you know, if the current business environment values not just the ability to innovate, but then the ability to iterate really fast on the dot, that is almost synonymous with mindfulness. Without mindfulness, without the ability to focus, without the attention span, you're just going to keep shooting in the dark. And, you know, there are two other qualities that I would mention of most importance in today's business climate, in addition to the ability to innovate and the ability to iterate, is the ability to execute super fast, super clean. Everybody has to act like they are an entrepreneurial small business. And that means you have to work with other people. And you have to be aware of what they're doing. You have to sense how the environment changes. You have to be like like an awareness ninja to execute cleanly and accurately. And of course, mindfulness, mindfulness awareness is another way of saying execute cleanly and crisply. And then the final thing that I find mindfulness has tremendous uh, consequence for is that the way most businesses now establish customer loyalty this was kind of blows my mind when I realized this is by having actual relationships with them that have human qualities that aren't just based on propaganda and, you know, trying to get them off the phone as fast as possible, dial one for this and nine for that, but to actually connect with 
human beings. That is what creates customer loyalty in this world where word of mouth is king. And mindfulness or meditation is famously associated, not just with, you know, stress reduction and symptom reduction and illness and so on, but with compassion, with authenticity, with an open, a sense of openness to others. And you cannot, I don't think, um, treat customers the way we want to be treated now without that sense of openness and the, the willingness to actually care. Okay. Wow. You have just laid a lot on us, Susan. So be a mindfulness ninja. And if you are a mindfulness ninja, that implies that you are focusing, paying attention, and caring. And therefore, that implies that if you're doing this in relation to your customers, for example, but of course this would apply to the people you work with as well, but we're talking about customers, you're going to have better customer relationships because that sense of uh, focusing, sense of listening actually will come through and, and make a difference in, the, in those relationships with customers. Absolutely, absolutely. I, uh, I fly around a lot, as, as I know you do, and I always try, you know, this is just me, but I always, whenever possible, I try to fly JetBlue because one of their corporate values is kindness and humanity. And they are not BSing about that. I mean, they're not they're like singing Kumbaya and sitting around a campfire with me. But when I ask a question, they look at me. When I feel that I'm nervous about something, they attend to me. There's just a basic human decency that is there that is very different than, than, than other airlines. And I'll add something else to, so yay, JetBlue, shout out. Um, something else I would add to the list that we just uh, described together, innovation and iteration and so forth, and that is the ability to return to balance. We live in a crazy world. Things sometimes go your way, sometimes they don't. Sometimes your ideas kill, sometimes they just tank. If you have a strong mindfulness practice, you have cultivated the ability to work with your own mind states in any extreme and therefore know how to incorporate them and come back to a state of balance and open attentiveness and not get lost in your hopes and your fears and your self, negative self-talk or your positive self-talk, but instead to let go constantly and return attention to the present. And the only place that things are happening are in the present. So it's very helpful. For everybody that's watching, I hope that you know that we have a simultaneous tweet chat going on on Twitter with pound, hashtag, somebody once accused me of not knowing Twitter because I said pound. So. Uh, I know. Uh, hashtag CXO talk. And we have a question from a top industry analyst in the software enterprise software business, Frank Scavo, who's asking, and I have to put my glasses on for this, uh, do you see a connection between mindfulness and quote-unquote lateral thinking as taught by Edward DeBono? And I'm not sure who Edward DeBono is, but you might know, but lateral thinking and mindfulness, creativity. Let's bring that in. Well, hi, Frank. Um, 
what is what do you mean by lateral thinking? Does that mean the ability to think across multiple disciplines, the ability to think uh, not just in your area of specialty, I'm assuming is what it means. And I would say that yes, mindfulness has tremendous application to lateral thinking by that definition, because it creates a mind that is flexible, that is agile. It is very much akin to uh, a body that is flexible. And so in meditation, in mindfulness, your focus is on the breath in most practices. And when thoughts arise, you don't try to stop thinking. That's the biggest misconception. No problem. You can think all you want. No, no need to stop thinking, people. Um, but when you notice that you've become distracted by thought and you've lost track of your breath, you just let go and come back to your breath. And every time you come back to your breath, it's like doing a curl, you know, in the gym. It's like you flex that muscle. You get lost in thought. You come back, another curl, and so on. So you create a mind that is strong and flexible, as I say, and is not stuck on one point of view, one perspective, because we've all worked with people or had relationships with people that you can ask them a question 10 different ways, and they will always just give you the same answer that's based in their single stationary point of view, and you can't get them to stretch their mind. Meditation is a mind-stretching uh, exercise, so I would say there is no doubt that it helps with lateral thinking because it makes you more flexible in your mental habits. And we have another question from Arsalan Khan who asks, can mindfulness itself lead to biases? And if so, how do you deal with that? Hmm. That's a very interesting question. What's the person's name? Arsalan Khan. Arsalan Khan, that's a very interesting question. Can mindfulness itself lead to biases? I would say no. Mindfulness in its pure form, its correct form, its ancient form does not. And in the sense that it doesn't have a preference, which is, I find very interesting. And as a puny human being, I'm not capable of. But for the great you know, mindfulness adepts, it is said there is not a preference for pleasure or pain. It's sort of seen as kind of equal. But of course, we have great preferences. And so I would say if mindfulness is used to put forth any particular rigid point of view, then it is misnamed as mindfulness. And, you know, it may uncover biases, but that's helpful. But I don't think it leads to biases. But if you have a follow-up question to that, it would be very interesting to hear what it is and if that answer was useful or not. So mindfulness then is the um, is putting aside, in a sense, one's biases in order to. And I was going to say being neutral, but it's not really being neutral, is it? No, actually, it's the opposite of being neutral. It is the sense of putting aside one's biases because one's biases are most often an obstacle, an obscuration, where you can't actually see clearly. When you, you don't stop having biases because we're just human beings, but you notice your biases, biases, and then you're able to let them go. That is very powerful in and of itself. To then place attention on the present moment, which is just what's happening right now. It's another way of saying what's happening right now. 
And then you are not thinking about what you're thinking about what's happening. You are engaged. And it's the opposite of neutral in that when you set aside your biases, which we use most often as protection for our vulnerability, you're exposed. And you actually feel more. I remember uh, once being quite surprised by this. I've been meditating now for uh, over 20 years and teaching meditation for eight years. And I remember being very surprised that rather than making me more, you know, implacable, it made me more sensitive. And I wondered what I was doing wrong until I asked my meditation teacher, you know, what was going on. And he said, this was a very, uh, actually a sign of progress in the practice when you can feel more because you're feeling those things anyway, but we use biases and prejudices and beliefs to actually protect ourselves from certain things. But when you stop protecting, that's what's called brave. And then you can have the courage to execute your ideas, which it really required courage. And Constance D. Wood, so again, taking questions from Twitter with the hashtag CXO talk. Constance D. Wood, Wood, I am sorry, it is Constance, yes, Constance D. Wood, sorry about that. Sorry for my initial sorry, I was right then. Okay, Constance D. Wood asks, uh, what about multitasking? Mm-hmm. Hi, Constance D. Woods. Uh, multitasking is a fallacy. You can't actually multitask. Science has shown us this. However, you, we are all accustomed to doing things, you know, multiple things at a time. You're cooking, you're talking on the phone, you're texting, you're driving. Don't do that. Um, but actually, you're not, again, research has shown that you're not actually doing all of those things at once. You're pinging your attention from one to the other. And it may be very, very rapid pinging, but you are not doing multiple things at once. You're doing multiple things concurrently, very rapidly. So I hope that answers your question. There is no such thing as multitasking. Susan, now let's talk about mindfulness in a corporate setting. And I know that there are a number of companies who are focused on this. Salesforce.com, in their new office building, I understand, are building mindfulness rooms. And Google has embraced mindfulness. So so talk about the harnessing of mindfulness. Is that even the right term in a a corporate setting? Mm -hmm. Yes. Well, that's is a really, really, really interesting question. And I hope it can be harnessed because it's of utmost importance to be successful and not just successful, but satisfied. Um, but this may be controversial. I have yet to see it harnessed well. I've seen a lot of corporations who are bringing in mindfulness programs. I was talking to one such company today, I won't name, but a multinational corporation who is not quite sure why, and I'm paraphrasing here, the, at an initial mindfulness session, 150 people showed up. The second mindfulness session, 30 people showed up. 
And the third mindfulness session, like two people showed up and they sat there texting. <laughs> you know, that's not exactly accurate, but it just, the point is it just diminishes. Uh, so everyone can start a mindfulness practice in a corporate setting, but very few can sustain a corporate mindfulness program. And I've really thought about that. I've really thought about that because it's not just corporations that have trouble sustaining a mindfulness program, no matter how powerful the research and how strongly the, the principles embrace it. It's actually us, we humans have trouble sustaining a mindfulness practice or a yoga practice or an exercise, whatever it is we might want to do. Why? Yeah, why? 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 I'm, I'm fixing to tell you why. <laughs> <laughs> so I, like a month ago, I was on book tour. My, I just had a book come out this fall. And somebody, it was about how to meditate, how to start a practice. And somebody said, this question I've heard multiple times, many times, why do I not do it? I, I start out and then I don't do it. And what are the tricks for actually keeping it going? And I was about to give my normal answer when it just, it sort of struck me like a lightning bolt. It's impossible that 100% of people lack discipline. And that's the percentage of people that confess to me that they have trouble maintaining their meditation practice. And they, we think it's because we lack self-discipline or because we are not committed. And of course, some of times we lack self-discipline and sometimes we lack commitment, but I don't think that's the case for most of us. And the mathematical odds that it is true for everyone is just very, very small. So I think there are two qualities that most often go missing from our personal and our corporate mindfulness programs. Uh, and that is, these, they are the following. The first is a sense of community. And I don't mean kumbaya, sitting around the fire community. I mean, some sense of, I am doing this with others and whether you're in your house, but sometimes you go to a meditation center or you're in a company with people and you are embracing the principles together and you're meditating together because there's a sense of comradeship and teamwork. And we all know that if you try to go into your room by yourself every day and do it, you won't work. But the second you walk into a room where other people are doing it, a kind of gentle accountability is introduced and it, it is very buoyant for one's practice. This happens across the board. So most corporate mindfulness programs do not focus on the community aspect. Maybe that's not a great word in a corporate setting, but the sort of collegial aspect, the teamwork aspect, the we are doing this shoulder to shoulder aspect. And the second quality that often goes missing because people are scared of this is what I call a path quality. And I think people are scared of this because means you know, everyone's gonna have to start wearing a turban and chanting om and stuff. but. That is not what it means. When you practice meditation, this is pretty much guaranteed. You, something starts to change within you. Your mind becomes more flexible. Your heart becomes softer. You have more ideas. So that's your path. Something begins to unfold. And some sense of guidance for that path, for that unfolding, and a sense of connection to the principles that underlie that unfolding, which is different for everyone, is very, very important. Otherwise, I promise you, you'll go back to your meditation cushion or chair. After five or six times, you'll be like, this is boring. I have too much to do. This is really hard. I can't do it. I must be doing it wrong. It's not for me. And that is 
almost always incorrect. Some sense of community and path are needed to sort of anchor the practice, but just showing up and doing it, you know, 2,600 years of mindfulness wisdom will tell you that that is not sufficient. Is it reasonable that, that companies can do this well, create that sense of community connection and path? I mean, after all, uh, companies are focused on their own interests. Mm-hmm. And so can you harness mindfulness in the service of corporate goals as opposed to for the benefit of the individuals? Or maybe those are one and the same. I do think they're one and the same. And I think absolutely you can harness mindfulness for the benefit of the bottom line. And, you know, you, if again, we live in a world where the ability to innovate and execute and so on is required, that mindfulness is simply a tool in your professional arsenal. You can't game human relationships And human relationships are at the core of what is needed for teams to execute well, for customer loyalty to be established. I find it very wonderful that we're in a a state in our consumerist culture where certain things that you used to be able to game, like advertising and so forth, you can't game them anymore. You have to offer something genuine. You have to create actual relationships. And as long as no one is pretending that this is because I want to help you become enlightened or because I want to teach you the values of non-attachment. Nobody has to pretend anything like that. If you just say, this will help us execute. This will help us be more brilliant. This will help us go towards the fires more quickly and with less fear. And this will help us actually celebrate our successes in a genuine way that makes us feel that we are part of something. Because there's one quality, I think, that sort of trumps every other quality that may be in a work environment. And I've talked to various companies that try to create culture. And culture is another very important concept in today's business environment. But they try to create it by having ping pong tables or snacks or, you know, things that are awesome. I like a good ping pong game and I'm a big fan of snacks. But culture is actually created by a sense of human connection and the quality of feeling that one belongs to something that one admires and that you cannot get with a ping pong table. So have your ping pong tables and so on, but real culture takes root in human relationships and culture is absolutely necessary to the bottom line, at least for many, many corporations out there, not, not all. But mindfulness can really help in these ways. Susan, as I talk with CEOs on, on this show, CXO Talk, the very best CEOs that I know talk about their employees because they recognize that employees who feel connected to the organization are the ones who are going to be the happiest and are the ones who will feel the mission and therefore want to support their customers in the best possible way. Maybe give us a link uh, to this concept of, of mindfulness, uh, between this concept of mindfulness and what I'm describing about 
culture building that these CEOs are, these great CEOs are just so relentlessly focused on? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really important question. You know, I'll just tell you a little story by, by means of answer. Uh, back in the day, I used to work in the music business when there was a music business. Uh, and I worked at this very sort of hip, 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 hip hop label and in New York City. And it was like the most uh, amazing office. Like it was designed incredibly. It was, we had our, like the best gym in Manhattan. It was in our office. You didn't, when you got off the elevator, you were like, is this the world's most, you know, fantastic cocktail party or is this someone's place of business? Because it was just very, very cool. And we also all got, everybody who worked there, everybody got a 20 minute massage once a week. And we had like massage rooms in the office with massage tables and Enya probably was playing at that time or whatever. But uh, every time I walked by those meditation, uh, those massage rooms, I saw the same thing. And that was nobody was in there. And we were all trying to palm off our meditations, our, our massages, excuse me, on everyone else, because the culture said, yeah, we want you to relax. But the underlying vibe was you better get back to work. And it was for show. So nobody wanted to be seen relaxing. Nobody wanted to be seen, you know, being meditative or anything like that. So it's one thing to say it. But it's another thing to actually manifest in your heart. And I hope I don't sound too woo-woo by using these words. Actual caring for actual human beings. And that together you care about the bottom line and what you are accomplishing. Without that quality of caring, <clears throat> it's just going to feel fake. And mindfulness and caring are like this. Because the only reason that most of us don't express the care in our hearts for the people that we're around is because we're afraid of them. And, or we're in an environment of fear. And mindfulness helps you navigate around fear to be genuine and smart and innovative. And nobody, by the way, is going to be innovative in a culture of fear. Nobody is going to bring their ideas forth in a culture of fear. And mindfulness and fearlessness have for 2,600 years been intimately associated. So I would say, yes, they can be correlated very, very clearly in my mind. So for companies who want to set up a mindfulness program, what do they need to be thinking about? And you know, as I, as I say that, at the same time, it strikes me as an odd thing to say because what is a mindfulness program? Mindfulness is not a corporate thing. Mindfulness starts from the individual, but companies can create the conditions out of which mindfulness can arise. Absolutely. And for any company that thinks they want to do this, I would say first, very, very strongly, think about that. Do you really want to do that? Or is this, you know, a flavor du jour that you think could be good? Think about that. And the second thing that I would suggest 
to whoever would be responsible for bringing this program in, whether it's a CEO or an HR person, develop your own mindfulness practice. That is cr crucial. Then you will know whereof you speak. And as you guide other people into it and through it, you will be able to do so as a leader. And, you know, and PS, it will just be really good for you anyway. <laughs> be good for you anyway. Okay. And what advice do you have for individuals who want to become more mindful? I would say to those individuals, yay, it's a wonderful inclination, and learn to meditate. Mindfulness and meditation cannot be separated. Learn to meditate and learn it under the following circumstances or according to the following mm, list of rules. Try to find an actual meditation teacher, somebody who has been trained to teach it and is a good teacher and has been authorized or graduated from whatever program they applied themselves to, to be able to call themselves a meditation teacher. Don't, you mean, you can go on YouTube, you can Google it, you can find, you can listen to these people. You don't have to go directly to them for personal instruction, although that's awesome if you can do that. Find a meditation teacher who is connected to a lineage that is more than 2,600 years old. That's my line in the sand. In other words, we do not want any new age nonsense. We don't want something that someone went into their room and made up. Although, you know, the Buddha went into his room and made it up at some point, but then it was tested for 2,600 years. So we want something that is rooted in something real. Nobody has to pretend to be a Buddhist or a turban or anything like that, but we want something that's been tested seriously. And then try to bring the practice into your life in a very gentle way. Here's what I request that you do not do. Do not say to yourself, I am going to meditate every day for the rest of my life because you won't. And then you'll feel really bad and then you won't want to do it. And then you'll feel even worse. And then you really won't want to do it. So just look at your schedule and think I could probably do this for 10 minutes a day, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And I'm going to try that for two weeks. And then at the end of two weeks, review that and decide I want more. I want less. I want the same, but just take it very slowly and then I'll give you the advice that the Tibetan meditation master Chogyam Trungpa Rinpoche gave to his students. I heard, I was not there, uh, when someone said, uh, what should I do when I fall off the meditation wagon or whatever way they ask the question. And what he said had a cuss word in it, but I'll bleep myself. He said, you should feel bad, really, really bad for like nine seconds and then you got to cut that out because that is useless and worse than useless. So if you just fail to do it, just come back. And meditation, by the way, teaches that skill of what it means to come back without baggage. So the key then is consistency, or at least trying, put it that way. Yes, absolutely. Five minutes a day 
is better than one hour once a week. So by consistency, what we mean here is a little bit every day or most days. That's very important. But most people who have a meditation practice, myself included, go through times where it's like, oh, yeah, it's really easy. Or, oh, I haven't practiced for a few days or a few weeks. But then at some point you come back. That counts as consistency. So, you know, mindfulness is getting a wrap as a very intense, profound, and amazing self-improvement tool. And it is not a self-improvement tool, although it certainly will improve things, many, many things, and beyond what you can imagine. But if we come to it as with the sense of there's something about me that I need to fix, then it's like all the magic drains from the practice. It's actually what we want to be consistent about is having a practice where we let ourselves off the hook for five or 10 minutes a day or some days and just extend the hand of friendship to ourselves. We're not constantly working on ourselves. That uh, you, every bit of you, will respond very positively to that little break in how hard we're each working. We have only a few minutes left, but when you say... What, what were you saying that it's not about trying to fix oneself? But when you say we need to be more focused, more attentive, more uh, mindful, listening better, for most of us, we interpret that as, you know, we're trying to improve. So, so just elaborate a little bit on, on what you were just talking about, what you were just saying. Sure. Excellent question. So we want to be more creative we want to be more innovative. We want to create a strong culture. We want to be able to execute quickly on our ideas. All of those things have one thing in common, my friends. And that is they are predicated on the ability to relax. None of those things happen when you eat yourself up. And even the most wonderful things in our life, professional or personal, creativity and love and insight, these are things that arise when we relax. They're not things that we can go out and get, no matter how great your plan is. You can't say, today I'm going to go out and get a great idea. You have to relax. So the practice of mindfulness then is very important that you let go of your efforting to become a better this or that, and instead relax with yourself as you are. space opens up and into that space comes don't take my word for this try it yourself and see creativity pattern recognition ideas and kindness toward our fellow humans and so when we do that from a corporate standpoint, we become better listening, better listeners to our peers, more innovative, and the whole team works together more cohesively. Absolutely. You all are looking at the same goal, and then you are navigating there together. And nobody gets too caught up in their ego their personal contribution and whether 
things look good or bad for them, although everybody wants things to look good for them, and I hope everything will look good for you. But rather you stay focused on the corporate mission. And without mindfulness, the ability to stay focused on mission is very, very difficult. Because quite naturally, we focus instead only on ourselves and how good or bad we may be appearing. And then the mission becomes at best secondary and at worst just disappears altogether. Okay. Well, Susan Piver, thank you so much. This has been a fascinating discussion. It's gone by very quickly. Thank you for taking part, for taking the time to join us on episode number 164 of CXO Talk, Susan. Michael, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for inviting me. So you have been watching episode 164 of CXO Talk. We have been speaking with best-selling author and one of the top, it's a strange thing to say, mindfulness experts in the world on CXO Talk. Next week on Tuesday, we're having a special show on Tuesday, and that is with John Maida, who is with Kleiner Perkins, the VC firm. He just released the Design in Tech report. He used to be the president of the Rhode Island School of Design. So that's Tuesday, and that will be fantastic. It'll be really interesting. And then on Friday, we are speaking with Matt Preshern, who is the chief marketing officer for... HCL Technologies, a $7 billion company with 100,000 employees. And before we go, please tell your friends about CXO Talk. I want to try to build up this great CXO Talk community further. Subscribe to our newsletter and just share CXO Talk with two other people, even one other person, and I'll buy you dinner. Well, I'll be grateful for sure. Thank you so much, everybody. Thank you, Susan Piver. Thank you for watching, and we'll see you next time.